We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hello, this is Cheryl Bridgerson. And Jasmine Allnut. With Women Worth Knowing. That's right. And Jasmine, who do you have for us today? We have more plural women worth knowing. <laughs> and you guys thought you were getting off the hook with the medieval women. No, we're not done yet. I have a few more that I want to touch on. And well, again, that's how I was with the doctors, right? Y- yep, that's true. I Every guess time we, we thought we were done, unearth- I was like, I found four more. <laughs> we just keep unearthing these little treasures for you guys. And so, and I love these treasures. Yeah. Oh, yes. And they're all just so unique. I mean, yeah, we have all those medical, that medical series. And, you know, before that, we've done like what? Missionaries and women in hymn social writers. work, hymn writers. I mean, it just social goes activists, on. but we have more. Oh yeah, well, those ones we're gonna definitely. Have That's to right, because when we first to. started, we didn't really have any order. No, and it just ended up mostly being missionaries, just by default. But then we kind of right. transitioned somewhere. And we still have more missionaries. <laughs> we didn't. I mean, yeah, I know. I'm the, thinking of a couple. Yeah. Oh, me too. All right. <laughs> so, but. Uh, I just wanted to mention a few more of these gals. And and I think it's important to talk about women from the early church era and the medieval period because, you know, we don't have a whole lot of information. So it's easy to just think of the men during that time period, which, okay, that's how it was. But some of these gals really did notable things. I read that there's a book coming out this fall, which I can't wait to get, on all the women of the early church. Mm. But um, this professor who read the book was saying that the— Majority of the population of the early church was women. Yes, that's a great point. Yeah, tons. But we just don't have a lot of documented information about them or any or their own writing. You know, that's remember, if you guys remember back to Perpetua, that's mm-hmm. why her story was so significant because it was actually autobiographical. That was very unusual. So, but as we move along through the Middle Ages, we see more and more women uh, able to uh, get an education if they went to like the monasteries or the convents to learn to write and uh, all that sort of a thing. So that'll be a couple gals we talk to today. Oh, talk to, talk about. <laughs> okay, but real quick, think about how little we know about women, period, in the Middle Ages. I mean, there's just not much. There there aren't very many notable women mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. And these women are notable because they walked with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, we know their names, where there are countless thousands, you know, yeah. millions of women passing through the Middle Ages, who we don't know about. But these women, they're on the map, so to speak, mm. because they love Jesus. Yeah. And it it made them outstanding. Yes. Jesus gave their lives distinction. I like that. That's a great point. And so, actually, if you remember, um, in the last episode, we looked at some of the Christian queens, you know, from the barbarian kingdom of the Franks, who normally wouldn't necessarily be known. But because of their relationship with Jesus, they were able to get the door open for the gospel uh, and through their, you know, get their husbands saved, all of that. And then in Central Europe and England, we see the gospel spread because of those women, really, after the fall of the Roman Empire. And so we talked about uh, Clotilda and her husband, Clovis, and their granddaughter, Bertha, and her husband, Ethelbert, <laughs> and their daughter, Ethelberga, and her husband, Edwin, and the great influence that they had for the Lord on their kingdoms. And so today, I just want to pick up there with uh, a gal named Hilda, who was King Edwin's great niece. And remember, he was the first Christian king in Kent, which is a region of England. That's where um, Canterbury Cathedral is. That's usually a pretty significant landmark for most people know who the Archbishop Mm -hmm. of Canterbury is. Kind of the southeast sector of um, England. Yes, exactly. There we go. 
And so um, she was of royal descent, you know, because she was from that family line, but she never married. She um, just basically set herself apart to the Lord. She gave her life to God in response to uh, the preaching of a, a guy named Paulinus, and then she was actually baptized with Edwin, which was kind of special. Now, so that had would, quite a connection. That would be so insecure, though, for women living in that era not to get married. Oh, yeah. Marriage was your security oh, yeah. for life. And I mean, I don't think we understand how um, jeopardizing that was mm-hmm. or how vulnerable you'd be as a woman yes. not getting married. Oh, yeah. that's And we're talking like uh, she lived from 614 to 680. So this is still a really volatile time as Europe is forming because all of these barbarian tribes are still in the process of conquering one another and taking over. And so, yeah, I mean, you get sucked into all of this intrigue political stuff, especially as a royal. I mean, there's... There's a lot there. It does make you vulnerable if you're not married. But, you know, she really chose to do that. And at the age of 33, she decided to just completely give herself to God's service. And uh, when she was 35, she became the abbess at an, like, you know, an abbey or a convent in a place called Hartlepool. And then 10 years later, she herself founded probably the most famous abbey in England. Uh, it was at a place called Strinshalch, but we call it Whitby. So I've been to Whitby. It, well, there you go. Exactly. I know it's a really important landmark in right. England. But Whitby is interesting because, you know, she's from Kent. So you're going north and you're going northwest, which is, you know, quite a distance. Quite an adventure for back mm-hmm. then. That's right. a great point. Yeah. And she served there from 657 until her death in 680. So she kind of established it and got it running and was there for a little over 20 years. So, And can we say something, too? When we're talking about abbeys, then it wasn't like the Catholic Church that we know of today mm-mm, with mm-mm. convents. This was the only church available. This was the church where if you were a Christian, this was what you were part of. Yes, this is pre-Reformation. Um, Eventually, we'll talk about some of the women of the Reformation, too. Right. But that's when we really see the division, and that's a great point. Right now, it's just the church That's right. in general. And so, yeah, so Whitby Abbey, it was one of um, what were known as the Anglo-Saxon monasteries in the Middle Ages. And they were really um, unusual, unique, um, significant. And Whitby in particular is a really important historic site. But the Anglo-Saxon and even the Germanic peoples, to some extent, uh, they believed, contrary, this is surprising, contrary to a lot of societies, uh, they believed that men and women could be equals in a lot of areas of life. And Tacitus, the historian, uh, he was a Roman, and he even said that in the mind of the Anglo-Saxon man, he said, there resides in women an element of holiness and prophecy, so they do not scorn to ask their advice nor lightly disregard their replies. Okay, I think I love them. Yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of explains even why the husbands of those you know, barbarian leaders were Listened. willing to listen to their wives. Mm-hmm. They had, even before they got saved, there was this spiritual side to women that they respected. And so I, I love how the Lord worked with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they had no problem establishing double monasteries for men and women to be in as equals. And so, um, you know, we often think of, um, well, the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages, and um, we think of monasteries and convents as these isolated places and that were cloistered off. And yeah, there was some of that, uh, but they were not unsophisticated. They were actually considered the universities of their day, especially the Anglo-Saxon monasteries. And this was really where a lot of Western civilization was preserved during that time that we now consider the Dark Ages. We always think, oh, man, they were all just, you know, a bunch of thugs and so unsophisticated running around. Even even the women had beards and they're all just like crazy. And You know, it's interesting because Tom Holland in his book, How Christianity Changed the World, he mentions um, just about how these, you know, 
places of learning preserved the books, even uh, what we would consider the Muslim poetry. Right. They yeah. preserved the books, you yeah. know, because everyone thinks of Christians as book burners, but they were actually the preservationists of their day. Yes, that's excellent. Yes, they saved all the classics. They respected that and as, as, as literature and mm-hmm. even like um, the Greek and Roman classics, all of that. And so um, it was, yeah, it was a really, really significant. I mean, we can't really emphasize that enough. I mean, a lot of, we wouldn't have a lot of what we have now in terms of classical literature without the preservation that took place there. So um, evangelism was also at the forefront of their monastic activity. And so a lot of, you know, pagans, I guess you could say, in the surrounding areas were led to Christ um, through the spread of the gospel, through uh, Whitby and some of these other Anglo-Saxon monasteries. Plus also, you know, speaking of the the monasteries for women, it was protective. Mm-hmm. It was very protective. Again, Hilda hasn't married and she's vulnerable as, yeah. a, as a woman, especially at 35. Yeah. And the monastery was a place where she could embrace her singleness and be safe. Yes. And, able, and she was able to have a lot of influence because mm-hmm. of the way they viewed women. And a lot so- of widows would join the monastery too, because again, it was safe. They were supported and they could work together in the unity with these other yes, women. Yes, exactly. And so the women, especially Hilda, uh, they were uh, powerful and influential because of their role at the Abbey. They oversaw, I mean, she oversaw vast territory. Um, they were treated as equals with political and religious leaders in some instances. Hilda was, you know, became a really a woman of great importance as the abbess of Whitby. And she instructed a lot of people who became leaders throughout England. Um, also, the monasteries, I just remembered, had farmlands. Yes, they had land. Exactly. The, so the they were very self-supporting, the, too. Yeah. And in fact, they so sold much. some of their produce. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I'm just trying to give them a picture. You yeah. Know? yeah. <laughs> Put it in your mind. Yes. <laughs> The historian Bede said uh, that he was like one of the great medieval historians um, from England. And he said all who knew her called her mother on account of her piety and grace and that there were nobles, bishops, scholars. They did not merely ask her advice, but they also followed it. So she was a real notable woman in her day. Uh, Her monastery was actually destroyed 100 years later by the Vikings, sadly. Wow. Uh, But uh, it represents that unique Anglo-Saxon tradition of equality, kind of a golden age, really, for Christian uh, women in history, especially, again, in in an era like the Middle Ages, where you wouldn't think that was the case. This was a little period of time when women were given a lot of opportunity for public service and ministry. And, And Hilda had a real legacy that sprung from uh, faithful, godly teaching and leadership, and it brought directly and indirectly a lot of people to the Lord. And so that is Hilda. And then, wait, how old was Hilda when she died? Do you know? She was uh, sixty-six. Oh. So she made it pretty long for the middle middle ages. For the middle yeah. ages, yes. Yeah, that's... yeah. Probably let good, good, clean. She's only five years older life. than I am, but. <laughs> But back then, are you right. kidding? That's a miracle. It is. Uh, this next gal actually lived into her 70s. Woo-woo. And that was Leoba. So Leoba is another of the great early medieval figures. She lived from around 710 to 782. And she um, served with a missionary named Boniface. And Boniface is probably a more familiar. Cheryl's nodding. She knows who that is. He was considered, he was a more uh, known figure of that time. He was considered the apostle to Germany to bring the gospel to Central Europe, um, basically. But once again, what most people don't know is that there was a woman who served with him in spreading the gospel among the Germanic tribes. And that was Leoba. 
So she was born to um, really godly uh, members of the English nobility. And so, again, we're talking a couple of generations after, you know, Clotilda and Ethelberga and these women have really established the Christian faith. And so uh, as part of their legacy, uh, Leoba is born into this Christian nobility family. And she was kind of a miracle baby because her mother, Ebba, was approaching old age and she had a vision of a church bell in her bosom. And so she had no idea what this meant. So she was talking to an elderly nurse and this woman was just, you know, loved the Lord. And apparently the Lord gave her a word and a, kind of a, I guess, an interpretation of that dream. And she said, Abba, this means that you're going to have a child. I know you're getting old. <laughs> you're going to have a child, but you need to dedicate that child to the Lord, kind of like Hannah did with Samuel in the Bible. And so Abba really took that to heart. And soon after she and her husband, Dino, they gave birth to Leoba and her name means beloved. Mm. And so they adored her, but they also knew that this was a gift from God. Now, so where they, was Leoba born? Oh gosh, where were they? Well, they were in the English nobility, so they were okay. somewhere in that region, but eventually, okay. like Boniface, she would go down to mm -hmm. the mainland Europe. So when Leoba was of age, she was committed by her parents into the care of a woman named Teta, who was the abbess of Wimborne. And she was educated at the Minster in Thanet and became an expert in all these aspects of theology. And she loved God's word so much that she even had other nuns read to her while she slept. Mm. And as the story goes, if one of the nuns made a mistake while they were reading, even if she was asleep, she would correct them. So I don't know if she was just never completely fully asleep or if she was... Anyway, and it was cute because it said some of the younger nuns would try to test her. And so they'd misread something to see if she really was awake and she would correct them. Don't always. you love it that there's a little <laughs> rascal in them? Yeah, totally. I know. I love that they were trying to just like, okay, this time she won't get it. But yeah, man, this woman, she was something else. I guess maybe she was always half asleep, half awake. She always had the word on her mind. <laughs> so uh, one night she had a dream that a purple thread, this is kind of random, but it was a purple thread coming out of her mouth. And it was so long that she was able to wind it into a huge ball. And she knew this is significant, but I have no idea what this means. So kind of like what her mom had done, she found an older woman uh, at the convent who uh, apparently had a, you know, a gift of prophecy or understanding. Interpretation, these kinds of things. right? Interpretation, exactly. And she interpreted the dream and she said, oh, Leoba, uh, this indicates that your teaching and your godly example are going to benefit many people one day. Wow. And actually, that's what ended up happening. Soon after this was when Boniface actually sent for her. I think she was a distant cousin of his. And so he knew about her, her godliness and her desire to serve the Lord. And so... He asked her to come and help him establish uh, monasteries and convents uh, for education and for spreading the gospel in Central Europe. And so he brought her to a convent he had established at a place called Bischofsheim as the abbess there. And yeah, it sounds like that might be in Germany or Bavaria. Yeah, I think yes. so. Yeah. <laughs> and to kind of fulfill his you know, wider vision, um, he asked her to start raising up other women to be superiors and abbesses in other convents. So it was like convent planting, basically different than church planting a little bit. But that was kind of the goal was to spread. But, you know, these all are, of these things. these are more like hostels mm -hmm. because they're so protective. So you've got all these like disenfranchised women. Yes. You know, as I said before, widows or young widows or old widows that they'll starve to death. And so when you yeah. opened up one of these, it became a haven too. Mm -hmm. um, and they were able to be educated. And even like uh, young women who lost their parents, orphan Lots girls were orphans. able to. And yes. you didn't necessarily stay there all your life. You could at that point leave and marry. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Especially if you were an orphan and you mm -hmm. just grew up there. Some of them chose to stay, but yeah, you're That's right. right. Some of them could. But it was a choice in those uh, days. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. It got a little weird later on. Yes. As we'll see. But 
So Leoba has been described, uh, she had a biographer who kind of compiled all the accounts of her uh, named Rudolf of Fulda. And so he said she was described as angelic, inward, pleasant, clear in mind, great in prudence, most patient in hope, universal in charity. And even though she was known for being really educated, she didn't just teach, you know, the gr grammar, the arts, you know, science, all that. She really... Um, gave wisdom and counsel from the heart. She was very genuine. She wasn't cold or distant. I mean, she really cared about people. And uh, it says too that she, his account also said that she was ever on her guard not to teach others what she did not carry out herself. Mm. And that got brought up a lot, that she really was a consistent example. She didn't want to tell other people to do something and be a hypocrite and not do it herself. She really followed through. She was also known for uh, her humility. Um, she was not a distinguisher of persons. So just a beautiful Christian example. And so she was respected and loved by so many. Uh, bishops would come to discuss spiritual matters with her. She was even summoned to the court of Charlemagne. That might be a familiar name. Uh, another, you know, really famous medieval figure, kind of the founder of the Holy Roman Empire. His wife also got saved, Charlemagne. And his wife. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that because they became really good friends. So she became really good friends with Leoba and kept trying to get Leoba to come and live at the royal court, but Leoba hated it. She's just yes. like, oh, it was not her jam. Obviously, you live in a convent, you're here in like a decadent palace. It's like, oh. but it was really cool because they had a really sweet relationship. Yeah, just a iron sharpening iron kind of a thing where mm -hmm. they were really close uh, spiritually. I thought that was really neat that she, you know, she tried. She was trying to be all things to all men, even though she didn't live there. <laughs> she was willing to go and be a part and a godly influence at royal court. And so... Uh, Boniface really appreciated just the kindred spirit Leoba was in ministry and service, so much so that he actually asked to be buried next to her. Mm. Uh, oh, sorry. He asked that they be buried together at their death. He actually died first. Mm -hmm. um, and he said that they who had served God during their lifetimes with equal sincerity and zeal should await together the day of resurrection. Mm. And so when she died in 782, uh, his request was granted. And so... Uh, that's Leo, but there's also, you know, uh, Rudolph of Fulda also recorded some some miracles and stuff that apparently happened um, during her time, like healings and stuff like that, that had a lot of reliable eyewitnesses. So she was a pretty remarkable woman. Um, then I have a couple more here. Roswitha or Hrotsvit. Oh, these I mean, medieval names, my gosh. Okay, so uh, this is moving on a little bit. She lived around 935 to 1000. So and 200 years later. Yes, we're skipping ahead a couple hundred years, but it's really cool because, you know, we look at Boniface and Leoba's legacy, and she actually studied in one of their convents that they had established. So, you know, it just goes on and on, and we see that with a lot of the women that we've looked at, the connections. So, um, Roswitha, as part of becoming educated, she studied the great Roman classics like Virgil, Horace, Ovid. Um, but, they, uh, you know, most people, especially in the Christian community, considered this to be really scandalous and inappropriate for Christian readers. Um, but they were also very well written and just beautiful uh, language, cultured Latin works. Well, think about how Paul um, quoted the poets of his time. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they were, you know, so it was hard because they appreciated the beauty of mm -hmm. the writing. But mm -hmm. there was, you know, a lot of just real decadent stuff. And so because Cross with the just kind of had this gift for writing, a lot of people in the convent started encouraging her, like, why don't you kind of redeem this genre a little mm -hmm. bit? You know, some of mm -hmm. these, you know, pagan Roman things, why don't you take those and develop something that will honor the Lord? Use mm -hmm. the secular classics as models. And so that began her career as really the first woman poet and playwright in German history. So mm. fun fact. Really? I know. That's excellent. And so, yeah, her literary works uh, became forerunners and inspiration uh, for writers in the future. She wrote uh, a poem called The Lapse and Conversion of Theophilus, 
uh, which was the first attempt anyone had ever made to write about a man making a pact with the devil. Oh. And that— I, know. I thought this was the person that Luke dedicated his uh, oh, gospel oh, that to. Oh, that's the awfulest. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is the awfulest, awfulest. The, the, the awfulest. awfulest. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, just that, that whole notion was totally novel and new, but it became a, kind of a common theme. The most famous—some of you guys might know—the most famous occurrence of this in literature is uh, Goethe— when he wrote the Faust legend. So Faust is kind of based on that idea, but it comes from her, which is really remarkable. Things nobody knows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she also wrote these things um, that were known as morality dramas, and they became kind of the basis for um, the first miracle plays and mystery plays that were very prevalent in the later Middle Ages. I remember even learning about that in school, uh, uh, morality plays. It was a really popular medieval literature, but she well, you know started that. interesting about that, too, because the plays have become so... Uh... Decadent. Yes. Oh, gosh. The, Man. <laughs> you, very decadent. Very awful, especially in, you know, Roman times mm-hmm. that it was very, you know, what we say, body. You know, yeah. it was just yeah. gross. It was. And it was so these nice. morality plays were really attractive because they were clean and they taught virtues. Yes, exactly. Like, let's use maybe the good eloquence and language, but let's, you know, elevate it, redeem mm-hmm. it for the for the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and, and that's what the morality plays were basically about. It was about Christians overcoming temptation and persecution. Like you said, it was, it was uh, inspiring uh, morally and uplifting. Um, actually, it's even thought one of her works, which was called Callimachus, uh, was an inspiration for Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. I mean, <laughs> you know, if they trace back a lot of the inspirations for these authors, and it's really pretty remarkable how many things come back to her. So her works were obviously important, not just in the Christian community, but they really contributed to the world of art and literature as a whole. And you guys might remember several months ago, we did a, an episode on Hannah Moore. And I was thinking of Hannah Moore. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. She wrote plays. Yes. Yes, exactly. And just she had that idea like let's let's use this for the glory of God. Let's mm-hmm. not just shun secular literature and never look at right. it again. Well, like, Amy Sibyl McPherson oh. also did that. She wrote those musicals. That's right. Yes, redeeming things for the kingdom. And I just love that. Like let's use these gifts for the glory of God. And that's really what she wanted to do. Um, using her secular, you could even call it a secular job. I'm just, I'm an author, but Mm -hmm. using it for the Lord. And so she was considered a great talent, but she uh, really wanted to maintain a right perspective of herself and really um, just wanted to stay humble before the Lord. And so she said, all her talent came from God. She said, through whose grace alone I have become what I am. And yet I am fearful of appearing greater than I am, being perplexed by two things, the neglect of talents vouchsafed one by God and the pretense of talents one has not. So she was always trying to maintain that balance. I don't want to, like, neglect what the Lord has given me, but I also don't want to, like, trust in myself. And so, uh, I, but I love that she just wanted to maintain that balance and perspective. She had a healthy fear of God and humility in all of her writing, and it enabled to, her to do all she did to the glory of God. Um, she even said, all I am bent on, however insufficiently, to turn the power of mind given to me to the use of him who gave it. So uh, she, like I said, acknowledged God's gifts and confidently use them as unto the Lord, which is good for us to remember too. You know, being humble doesn't mean we just like go and hide away everything the Lord's given us. Oh no, I'm nothing, I can't do anything. No, just know that the Lord gave it to you. Use it confidently, but confidently in him. (laughs) 
And I love that she wrote about that and just how the Lord was teaching her that process. And so we get that little glimpse into her personally on that level. So her works fell into obscurity for about 500 years, but then got rediscovered during the Renaissance and became known as some of the most important literature of the Middle Ages. And that's when they really, like I said, took off inspired morality plays and then later authors with the Faust legend, like I said. Goethe wasn't until like the 1800s, I think. But yeah, kind of cool. So uh, last but not least, we have today Hildegard von Bingen. She's going to kind of segue us because eventually I'm going to talk about like the mystics. And she had a little bit of that going on in her. And that was a very common. Oh, there are uh, so many mystics. There's a lot of mystics. I'll yes. try not to hit all of them or anything, but there's several that are really but notable. But they are worth knowing about. They really are. And a lot of them, you know, as we're going to see, it was a common way for women to be able to express their faith in the Lord because most women at that time were uneducated and they needed mm-hmm. a way to, you know, express their faith. But the mystics continue even to the beginning of the United States. Exactly. So Hildegard was uh, one of the more prominent medieval women as we're heading into more the later Middle Age. Well, we're kind of in the high Middle Ages here, 1098 to 1179. And so there's actually been more academic interest in her lately, which is pretty surprising. She was a German Benedictine abbess, uh, mystic, like I said. She was also a musical composer. In fact, when I teach the history of worship class for our school of worship here at Calvary Chapel, I talk about her a little bit. So it's kind of fun. Um, she was born to a nobleman named Hildebert and his wife Mechtilda. I think they combined just... their names to get Hildegard. There must have been. I think yeah, there's some Hilda kind of combo Bert, there. Mechtilda. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what is going on here? These are terrible. Anyways, wow, they sound terrible to us. Hildegard. <laughs> Be on your guard. She was exactly. She was frail, um, but spiritually she was always strong, and she always kind of had a mystical tendency. In fact, um, she apparently received her first vision from the Lord when she was five years old, and perhaps for that reason, her parents decided we need to give this girl to the Lord. Um, God has a special calling on her life, and so when she was eight, they sent her to live with her aunt Yuta, who lived in seclusion. Uh, to pursue the Lord, which is what a lot of mystics did. And so Jutta and Hildegard ended up drawing a lot of other women who wanted to pursue a spiritual life in seclusion. And so they started in kind of an informal convent together. And when Jutta died in 1136, Hildegard became kind of the abbess of this informal little convent. And uh, the building that the nuns were in was becoming too small, so Hildegard started looking for another site to build on. Interestingly, she actually wanted to move somewhere that would have a less male supervision. And so she ended <laughs> like up her. taking it. Yeah, exactly. She's like, you know, we can have the freedom to do a little bit more if we're on our own. So she took them to Bingen, Germany in 1150. And that's how we get the name Hildegard von Bingen. And a little bit before this, in 1140, she had a significant vision where she said, heaven was opened, a fiery light of exceeding brilliance came and permeated my whole brain and inflamed my whole heart, not like a burning, but a warming flame as the sun warms anything its rays touch. And she said she got her command Oh, fragile one, ash of ash, corruption of corruption, say and write what you see and hear. And so she starts having these visions and feeling like God is calling her to do something with them. But being a woman, you know, she had some doubts and insecurities. She also went through a period of illness. But after she recovered, she felt during that illness that the Lord had really empowered and encouraged her to just obey his voice, step out in faith and see what he would do. And so she told her spiritual advisor, a monk named Volmar, about her visions. And he really was impressed. He was like, man, I really think that's from the Lord. And so... So he encouraged her to share uh, her visions with other church authorities, including Bernard of Clairvaux, who's a very significant medieval figure, and the Pope himself. They all approved of her visions. Yeah, Bernard is known for the uh, 
Knights of Templar working with uh, them. Yep, yeah. Oh, he was really yeah, mm-hmm. significant in that role. Mm-hmm. And so um, she kind of just gets launched here into public ministry, and she starts writing her visions in books. And one biographer said she challenged the male world by writing in Latin, the language of educated Whoa. men, although she never had been formally trained in it. Wow. She wrote lots of letters to people in church and political leadership, uh, including Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, King Henry II of England abbots and bishops, very bold. And her Mm -hmm. letters, it was said, became her principal means of influencing the church in her day. She was asked for advice. She gave out prophecies, warnings. Um, She wrote a collection of 77 lyrical poems to be set to music that she composed. And building on what Raswitha had done, she wrote the actual first morality play, Mm -hmm. uh, which, and what, what they did was they would give names of virtues to people and then they would go and contend with the devil. That kind of that was kind of the theme of the morality play. Mm-hmm. So um, she also wrote about natural history and medicine, quote, reflecting a quality of scientific observation rare in that period. In fact, her work included original observations and put her on par with the top naturalists of her day. So very well-rounded woman. Um, she did write, one biographer said she did write some medieval nonsense, you know, with old wives' tales and stuff. Mm-hmm. But but she also identified and diagnosed a lot of diseases, mental illnesses. I mean, she was so perceptive. So when she was 60, again, this is old for the Middle Ages. She embarked right. on these preaching tours. And incredibly, she was allowed to preach to men. At this point, she had established quite a reputation of godliness, and the Lord had really used her. And so she was really well-respected. She shared the gospel and her visions throughout Germany. She also performed miracles of healing. Apparently, the Lord healed a lot of people through her. And so when she died in 1179, she was considered one of the most influential women of the medieval era. And in 2012, she was made a saint and declared a doctor of the church, only one of four women with that title. So, I mean, she really was quite a woman worth knowing. I mean, she had a lot of influence in a lot of different fields. So pretty remarkable gals. And I do think I've heard the name Hildegard before. Ah, it's come up. Yes. yes. That's probably why. Might have been in a morality play. I don't it, know. It might have been. <laughs> she got a shout out in there somewhere. So we want to thank you for joining us um, as we looked at these four women of the Middle Ages. Yes. We've got more to come. Absolutely. But Join again, if you have a woman that's worth knowing that you want us to talk about on this program or if you have someone in your life that you just want to give a shout out to yes because of the way that they've influenced or touched your life or touched the life of someone else will you please write us at wwk at cccm.com so this is cheryl broderson and jasmine all that saying thank you for joining us this week on on this edition of women worth knowing see you next week <laughs> bye Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.